Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Like, I just bet that because I'm about to tell you that Pindosto was super fucking popular for like 250 years. Mm -hmm. Um, But the winner's tale did not really come to prominence until the, like the 19th century. So Robert green was up in the afterlife cackling for 250 years and being like, yeah, I see you Shakespeare, but like fuck off. Cause my shit is more popular. And now Shakespeare's like, yeah, no, <laughs> sorry. You had a nice run, but like, yeah, my dude. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together, we are Whamlet. Yes. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. This week, we are revisiting The Winter's Tale. Yeah, girl. So this Woo-hoo. is a 201 level episode, and that means things are a little different this time around. We will be operating on the assumption that you already have a basic familiarity with this play. So we won't do a synopsis. If you are brand new to The Winter's Tale or you just need to refresh your memory, listen to episode 21 of our podcast, The Winter's Tale 101. And that was from season one. Yeah, it was. God, that was a long time ago. I know, like a year ago. It was like this, almost this time last year that we recorded that episode. Yeah, it was like March or April, I think. It was like, I think it was in March sometime. But yeah, spring, spring springish. Cool. Yeah. Uh, well, so on 201 level episodes, we go narrow and deep on a couple mm. of topics relating to the play. Today, we are going to be talking about the source text for The Winter's Tale and also restorative justice and Leontes. Yes. Yep. It's a barrel of laughs this episode is what it's going to be. So I just I want to I mean, I haven't seen your notes, but I feel uh-huh. like I might be about to steal some of your thunder <laughs> talking about the source text. Oh. This is going to be really interesting. I'm excited about it. No. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess I guess we'll find out. We will. We mm-hmm. will. But before we get to any of that, we all we still do a rhetorical device of the week, but in our uh 201 episodes it's a little different. So in our 101 episodes, we discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and we give you examples. At this, the 201 level, we will revisit a device already drawn from a 101 episode and discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance. Now, I had to do a little bit of digging Mm. for this, but once I found it in The Winter's Tale, it was fucking everywhere. Yeah, I could see that. So it's everywhere. Okay, so um, we drew Aposiopesis. Back in our Spanish tragedy episode, way back when. And now I would like to, believe me, I went searching because I was like, I know we've done it. I know we've fucking done it. And I am revisiting Aposiopesis, A-P-O-S-I-O-P-E-S-I-S, Aposiopesis. And the definition is kind of in the word because it is breaking off mid-speech, usually presumably full of emotion, right, to pause in in mid-speech. 
Uh, and it's a form of direction or redirection rhetoric. So aposiopesis is everywhere in The Winter's Tale. Actually, I will amend that immediately. It's not everywhere. It's only in Sicilia and it's mostly Leontes, but it's really only in Sicilia. So let me break it down. All right. That's so interesting that it's only in Sicilia. Yeah. Oh my God. I just went through the text today to find these pauses and I literally could only find them in like one spot in Bohemia. Everywhere else it's in Sicilia. Okay. So in Act 1, Scene 1, the guy, Archidamus, he's not important. I don't know how to say his name. He's not important. Archidamus. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, He's the guy talking to, what's his butt in the very beginning? Camillo, thank you. I kept, I kept wanting to say Cleomenes or whatever. I couldn't. No, I got Cleomenes is a messenger guy. Totally different guy. Yeah. Yeah. I got stuck. I got tongue tied. Anyway, so this guy at the very top of the play says, Verily, I speak it in the freedom of my knowledge. We cannot with such magnificence in so rare. I know not what to say. Like, that is the very beginning of Act 1, Scene 1, when they're, like, gushing about how, oh, things have been going so great for the last nine months. Isn't mm-hmm. it wonderful? Right? If you He's... shall chance, Camillo. Yeah, yeah. Bohemia. I love yes. it. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Then, in Act 1, Scene 1, Leontes. Now, he's the biggest perpetrator of this because he's just brimming with emotion. So, one example from Act 1, Scene 1. He says to his son, Come, Sir Page, look on me with your welkin eye, sweet villain, most dearest, my collop. Can thy damn mate be? Dot, dot, dot. Uh, um, I, it's one, two is what Oh, that is it is one, not, two? I'm yeah. sorry. That's a yeah, different scene. Okay, fine. Yeah, they're, I know, they run together, but it's two different scenes. Okay, it's, you're right. It's one, two. Okay. Yeah. So one, two. And then later in that same speech, Leontes says, Then tis very credent, thou mayst co-join with something, and thou dost. And that beyond commission... And I find it, and that to the infection of my brains and hardening of my brows. Right? He's like at the height of his rage. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, one, two, Leontes. Gone already. Inch, Nick. Inch. I can't talk today. Inch thick. Inch deep, thick. Or head deep. and ears a forked one. Ugh. Go play, boy, play. Thy mother plays, and I play too, but so disgraced apart whose issue will hiss me to my grave. Contempt and clamor will be my knell. Go, play, boy, play. Right, so he's breaking off constantly. Two, three. Is so good, P.S. Can know. we just like. That speech is so good. It's so good. It's And it's aposiopesis just everywhere. Two, yeah. three. Paulina. From all dishonesty he can, in this, unless he takes the course that you have done, commit me for committing honor. Trust it, he shall not rule me. And that's, the, of course, the scene where she is like. Trying to bring the baby in front of uh, Leontes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Two, three, Antigonus. Wolves and bears, they say, casting their savageness aside, have done like offices of pity. Sir, be prosperous in more than this deed does require. And blessing against this cruelty, fight on thy side, poor thing, condemned to loss. So he's also breaking off and redirecting his ideas and then breaking off again. Uh Oh, gee, I don't know why. Maybe because he's just been told to take a baby out into the desert and leave it there. Three, two, Hermione in her big court moment, right? Mm. My third comfort, starred most unluckily, is from my breast, the innocent milk in its most innocent mouth hauled out to murder. And later in that same speech, she says, therefore proceed, but yet hear this, mistake me not. No, life, I prize it not a straw, but for mine honor, which I would free. Three, two, Paulina. 
And it's, this is a big one. But the last. Oh, lords, when I have said, cry woe. The queen, the queen, the sweetest, dearest creature's dead and vengeance for it not dropped down yet. And then we go into Bohemia and the play goes on. And this does not happen except for one really emotional moment when the shepherd gives his consent for Perdita and Florizel to marry because emotions. And then we move on into act five. And then it's Leontes, 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 Leontes again. And I'm kind of tired of giving all the examples now, yeah, but like I you can find I feel them. like you're fine. <laughs> yeah. But like you can find them. And especially during that statue scene. And even in that weird scene five two, the gentleman that like recount Julia all of the Romano. Julia Romano. Oh, Julia Romano. <laughs> but when they're recounting the reunions, like all of yeah. them are breaking off in their speech and and are overwrought with emotions. And just like by this point, I just give up because it's all over the goddamn place. So aposiopesis, apparently is the device of this play. Like I didn't know it until I went searching for it, but oh man. Oh, man, is it everywhere. And can you imagine, like, as an actor, that's kind of helpful, I would think. That's Mm -hmm. a helpful trend to notice. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. That's our device revisited this week, Aposiopesis. Here for it. Yeah, it's pretty great. Very revealing. Oh, I have so many feelings. Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do you you need a moment? Is your heart in the coffin there with Caesar or, like... Do you, can you come back? No, I'm I'm fine. <laughs> that was another example of a posiopesis. Never mind. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. All right. So it's Jess's bag. Yeah. So I want to talk about Pendosto. Uh, Pendosto is the source text for The Winter's Tale. Um, it is a 1588 prose romance by Robert Greene. Um, if you are wondering why the name Robert Greene sounds familiar to you. Uh, He was also a playwright. He wrote some shit. None of it particularly very good, but he is the guy. I just pissed off all of the Greene fans out there. (laughs) Uh, He wrote, sorry, he wrote Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, which is not um, a play that I love, but is a play that a lot of people love. So um, anyway, Uh, Robert Greene is the guy who... Uh, gives us our first textual evidence for Shakespeare being in London by 15 whatever. So he he wrote in, I don't remember what year, 1592. 1592, Robert Greene published his Groatsworth of Wit. Uh, and in it, he wrote the following... There is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he has, he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you, and being an absolute Johannes factotum, is in his own conceit the only shake scene in the country. Ooh, them's fighting words. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's so, jelly, Robert Yeah, Green. yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so that's the, uh, tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide is punning off of a line in three Henry six, two Henry six. I think it's three Henry six because that's when Margaret does the murdering of a lot more people and like wiping what's his face's blood on what's his face's face. Yeah. yeah. Which is tiger's heart (laughs) wrapped in a woman's hide. Is that what the line is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that. That is punning off of a Shakespeare play. Um, Shake scene 
is pretty self-evident for how that references Shakespeare. Um, so that's that's who Robert Greene is. So also Robert Greene wrote Pandosto, which is a, you know, we would call it a short story. Um, and it's fucking fabulous. Can we just we we're gonna it's my podcast. So we're we're gonna just. <laughs> OK, um, it's so fucking good. It's weird and it's awesome. All right. So I'm going to give you the summary of what happens and then I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. Okay. So in Bohemia, King Pandosto becomes suspicious that his wife, Bellaria, is conducting an affair with the visiting king of Sicilia, whose name is Aegistus. So Pandosto arrests Bellaria and throws her in prison, where she discovers she is pregnant and gives birth to a daughter, who Pandosto declares a bastard. The baby is set to sea in a small boat by herself and is recovered by a shepherd on the Sicilian shore. The shepherd is named Porus. He picks up the baby. He names her Fania and raises her as his own. Back in Bohemia... Uh, Pandosto puts Bellaria on trial and sends to the Oracle at Delphos to determine her innocence. The Orica declares Bellaria chaste and Pandosto treacherous, and Pandosto immediately repents his actions. News then almost immediately arrives that their older son, Garinter, has suddenly died, which causes Bellaria to die from shock. In Cecilia... Fania has come of age and is a great beauty. Here is our passage of time. Uh, she's caught the eye of Dorastus, who is King Aegistus's son. Dorastus pays court to Fania in the guise of a shepherd himself. Dorastus and Fania elope, pursued by the shepherd Porus. They find themselves all three back in Bohemia at Pandosto's court. Pandosto falls in love with Fania for her beauty and tries to get her to consent to being his concubine. When all true identities are revealed, Pandosto celebrates Fania's marriage to Dorastus and then commits suicide to atone for his ill treatment of Aegistus and Bellaria and his accidentally incestuous behavior toward Fania. The end. Yeah, no, I don't see it. I don't see any of the similarities you're talking about at all. I think you made it all up. I think yeah. this is fake news. So, <laughs> I wow. mean, I really, I really wish I could just, like, read the whole goddamn text. But I don't know. That would be an hour of just me reading. And that's yeah. not super exciting. Um, so, key differences mm -hmm. are... In, in Pandosto, the queen, Bellaria, stays dead. She dies, and she stays dead. Mm -hmm. She does not come back. She's she dead. She dead, she dies. She dies a she little bit. Dead. She real dead. She dies a little bit less than halfway through. Um, it's like if, if, this, if the text were divided into thirds, she'd die in the first half of the second third. <laughs> um, okay. So it's, anyway, she dies, she dies early. Other than that, you know, it's it's pretty standard. It follows Winter's Tale is not a, a huge inversion of really any of this, except for Hermione, obviously, is a statue, right. not a statue, whatever. And then at the end in Pandosto, he fucking kills himself. And I just I have to read to you because it's literally in the last line. Here's okay. what it is. It's so this is a very, very, very long sentence, but it is the last sentence of Pandosto. 
The marriage, which was no sooner ended but Pandosto, calling to mind how first he betrayed his friend Aegistus, how his jealousy was the cause of Bellaria's death, that contrary to the law of nature he had lusted after his own daughter, moved with these desperate thoughts, he fell in a melancholy fit, and to close up the comedy with a tragical stratagem, he slew himself, whose death being many days bewailed of Fania, Dorastus, and his dear friend Aegistus, Dorastus, taking leave of his father, went with his wife and the dead corpse into Bohemia, where, after they were sumptuous entombed, Dorastus ended his days in contented quiet. How nice for Dorastus. Yeah, right? It's like, so the, the end is like, oh, you know, we all recognize who we are. We're learning identities revealed, whatever. We're happy. We have reunion, blah, blah, blah. We've got a marriage. It's beautiful. And then fucking Pandosto walks off in a corner and is like, oh, hey, remember that time I tried to rape my daughter? Uh, stab myself. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's gnarly. Like, I'm just, I have my text here and I'm just sort of flipping through being like, I want to, I want to tell everyone everything. <laughs> so Pandosto was talking to himself. How art thou pestered, Pandosto, with fresh affections and unfit fancies, wishing to possess with an unwilling mind and a hot desire troubled with a cold disdain? Shall thy mind yield an age to that thou hast resisted in youth? Peace, Pandosto, blab not out that which thou mayst be ashamed to reveal to thyself. Ah, uh, Fania is beautiful, and it is not for thine honor, fond fool, to name her that is thy captive and another man's concubine. Alas, I reach at that with my hand which my heart would fain refuse, playing like the birds, playing like the bird Ibis in Egypt, which hateth serpents yet feedeth on their eggs. It's like yikes it's real it's real 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 gross um real yeah. real gross and is like hey yield thy consent to pandosto because i am gonna give you money and then she's like nah i'd rather be this guy's wife and a beggar than live in plenty and be pandosto's concubine and then he's like Mm, well, if she's not going to consent, maybe I should just force myself on her. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gosh, yeah. that sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. My power is such as I may compel by force. Gross. Yet, yeah. It's, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, like, I hadn't ever heard the accidental incest in the winter's tale um until i saw a production of it last night and Mm -hmm. i was maybe listening out for it and also anyway um it's like one line and it's pretty throwaway and it's just like oh you're pretty and you know were i younger right right yeah um but in pandosto they really lean into the accidental incest so Uh greek Yeah, yeah, it's it's real icky. Um, So, uh, you know, another one of um, the differences, if our listeners have clever ears, is the locations are swapped. Right. So in the Winter's Tale, the king and the Hermione, they're in Sicilia and then they go to the green world in Bohemia. And in this one, the court is Bohemia and the green world Sicilia. So Robert Um, Greene also doesn't seem to know that the real Bohemia does not have a coast. Because he yeah. they put the baby, they put a baby in on yep. in the water. Yeah, <laughs> in Bohemia. Yeah, and she arrives yep. in Sicilia. Okay, great. Yeah, yep. so just general Via geographical boat. misconceptions all yeah. over the place. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, God, I just I love I love I love this all so much. Okay, so now I want to talk about the Oracle. Okay, so 
if you don't believe me that this is the source text, which I don't know why you wouldn't, because I'm telling you it's true and also all scholars accept that it is true, this is true. But um, so in both texts, right, in Pandosto and The Winter's Tale, we have this trial, we have an oracle, and the oracle decrees the innocence of the queen. So here is how it reads in Pandosto. Suspicion is no proof. Jealousy is an unequal judge. Bellaria is chaste, Aegistus blameless, Franian a true subject, Pandosto treacherous, his babe an innocent, and the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found. What? Here's how it reads in The Winter's Tale. Hermione is chaste, Polixenes blameless, Camillo a true subject, Leontes a jealous tyrant, his innocent babe truly begotten, and the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found. Okay. Well plagiarized, Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I read Pandosto, I just was like, well, that's a word for word copy. Way to go, Shakesy. Um, Damn. I know, like, you know, there there are places where Shakespeare really follows the text. That is one of them. Mm-hmm. There are places that Shakespeare doesn't, notably the ending, right? Shakespeare is not concerned with the poetic justice for the king. He thinks, you know, Leontes has repented, I guess, enough and has been punished enough, I guess, and gets his happy ending. Hermione comes back to life, but the oracle, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. That was a word for word copy. Um, I don't. I just. I love this. I love. I love both of these things. Winter's Tale is my second favorite play. Pandosto is just a fucking delight. It's short. Also, it's real short. Um, everybody should read it. You can find it pretty easily. Um, and it was fucking popular. Here's another. This is another thing I want to talk about. Let me grab a third book. Great. <laughs> Um, so Pandosto was published in 1588 for the first time. Okay, good. I was going to ask that actually. And I just like, I said that also, did you, okay, I'm a bad listener. (laughs) Um, but I also (laughs) wanted to know if Robert Green was still alive when Winter's Tale was published and was performed. That's a good question. I think not, but let's Google it real fast. Because, I mean, given how, you know, insulted, personally attacked Robert Greene felt by Shakespeare's, like, up-and-coming career, you know, Mm -hmm. and also Robert Greene, I should say, he was, like, one of the OG uh, naysayers of, like, not the... um, is Shakespeare Shakespeare, but the idea that mm-hmm. someone from a university or someone not with a with yeah. someone without a university education could not possibly write with skill, um, and and there was like a contingent of of playwrights contemporary yes. with Shakespeare who kind of believed that and were real snobby about yeah. that. Robert Greene, Thomas Nash, yeah. some other people. What were they yeah, called? The no, University so, Wits or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Robert Greene died in 1592. Okay. So he was soup's dead. He was real soup, dead. Soup's dead. Um, okay. So Pandosa was published in 1588. It was reprinted in 1592 and 1595 and 1600 and 1607 and 1609 and 1614 and 1619 and 1632. And then, uh, in 1635, 1636, it was reprinted again 
but this time rebranded and called The Pleasant History of Durastus and Fania. So uh-huh. putting the emphasis on the young lovers instead of yeah. Pandosto. Uh, sorry, and I should also say the full title is Pandosto, The Triumph of Time. Huh. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Um, yeah, so then we have The Pleasant History of Durastus and Fania in 1536, 1640, Sorry, not 1536, 1636, 1640, 1648, 1655, 1664, 1677, 1680, 1684, 1688, Hmm. In 1796, we get a new title, The Royal Shepherdess. In 1810, we get a new title, The Adventure of Durastus and Fania. Wow. All this rebranding. That's fascinating. Uh Yeah. yeah. Um, So from 1588 to 1843, which is 250 years, Mm -hmm. give or take. Uh, it was printed like on average once or twice a decade in sort of like new editions. Um, and it was so popular. It was so, so, so popular and read so widely once we get into like the 17th and 18th centuries, sorry, once we get into late 17th, early 18th, early 19th centuries, um, it was more commonly read by the lower classes, like servant girls were big fans of this like sexy romance princess who doesn't know she's a princess, right? Like you I mean, get yeah. it. You, yeah. you see the appeal. Hashtag yeah. relatable. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then we have, so this is a prose romance. Prose, of course, is just like regular talking verse is like poetry okay so then we have all the verse virgins what yeah so adapted from the green or adapted from the green okay yeah um we get the first one in 1595 called the fisherman's tale also in 1595 we have one that's called flora's fortune then we have like a big gap of time in 1663-ish. We get something called the Jealous Duke and the Injured Duchess. In 1672, we have Fortune's Tennis Ball, which I love. <laughs> like, <laughs> might be my favorite title. Fortune's Tennis Ball. Yeah. In a world um, where... <laughs> in 1705, we get the most excellent history of Dorastus and Fania. Uh, and then in the 1750s, 1760s, 1770s, etc we have the royal courtly garland in several variations and those go up until 1800 so again 200 years of verse adaptations of pandosto as well as the incessant print versions the last time it appeared in cheap print like a you know like a dollar paperback was 1843 it has 60 ish extant versions of the tale like over these 250 years it was printed in 60 ish different versions so 45 prose and 15 in verse um we are assuming that print runs for the the book the prose version are about 1250 copies each so we can estimate that over these 250 years there were at least 75,000 copies of the text that were purchased. 
And then, given what we know about early modern reading practices, we can sort of guess that each typical copy was read by its first buyer, by the buyer's friends, by the buyer's descendants. This was, I don't know, one of the most popular pieces of literature for almost three centuries. Wow. Yeah, and The Winter's Tale was kind of the poor relation until... Yeah. It wasn't anymore. Yeah. Um, there's a fascinating book. Like if you want to read uh, a little bit more about Pandosto, I mean, first of all, read Pandosto. But second, if you want to know more about Pandosto and its popularity, um, there is a text called Reading Popular Romance in Early Modern England by Laurie Humphrey Newcomb. Um, it's fabulous. And it's just it's all about Pandosto and how popular it was and why it was popular and how much we love it and how great it is. It's got some really great images. Um, can't throw this up for the listeners, but Aubrey, I want to see if you can see this image. Um, oh, is that the that's the title page? Yeah, it's the title page to um, Fortune's Tennis Ball, nice. or The Most Excellent History of Dorastus and Fania, rendered in delightful English verse and worthy of the perusal of all sorts of people. <laughs> I love yeah. title pages. I love yeah. them because of that yeah. type of stuff. I love yeah. that. And then the woodcut is like a shepherd and a shepherdess looking in conversation and then a scene that I would describe as the three wise men visiting Jesus, um, but it's just <laughs> two shepherds and a king and like maybe a guard. Um, oh yeah, that does sound a little bit like the nativity. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then a bunch of sheep on a hill and a baby in a boat in a stream. Oh, wow. Or river. Look, or a little ocean. bit of Moses peppered into that yeah. nativity. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so biblical. <laughs> I love I love this text. Obviously, I love this text. I love The Winter's Tale. But Pandosto is so wild and wonderful and weird yeah, and sexy and not. Um, and I just wrote a paper about it, which we'll get into in the gossip section. So um, sorry. Anyway, I feel like that's about all. Perhaps I should probably stop talking about Pandosto. But I just want to this is my parting shot. Get your hands on a copy. Fucking read it. You can find it all over the Internet. Probably. I think it's also a, an appendix in um the Arden Three includes uh, the text of Pandosto oh, in the nice. back as an, an appendix. Pandosto, man, it's awesome, and I love it. It's great. And read it. And now I'm going to stop talking. I promise I'm going to stop talking. No, it's fine. It's I, I, no, I think it's great like to look at the source text, especially when we have one that correlates so directly. Um, yeah. Because I think they can both kind of inform the other, you know? And actually, yeah. that's one of my uh, gossip topics a little bit too, like have that conversation between two different works. Um, obviously, I'm a little biased. I, from what it sounds like, I think I would like the Winter's Tale a little bit better because, because the idea of forgiveness and redemption for Leontes is really, really important to me, which is a great segue that I just manufactured. So, uh, <laughs> um, I, I by no means consider myself a a religious person, but as I grow older. As she said condescendingly at age 35, as I look back on my life, um, no, I just, I, I have 
really I've started to realize over the years that forgiveness, like giving it and receiving it is is a huge deal for me as like a value. And if and if I could say I had like one sort of defining value um, at, at the top, I think would be the idea of forgiveness and that people deserve second chances and redemption um, because I think it's beautiful. And I think that's really the only way anybody can move on. Um, but I, I really see it in the winter's tale. And I didn't used to. I used to be one of those people who was like, fuck this Leontes guy, man, flip a table and then leave. And like, Hermione girl, don't talk to him at the end. No, he doesn't deserve it. Which he, you know, I I don't make any excuses for him and I'm not about to. She doesn't have to. But I have come around to realizing that what I value the most about this play is how beautifully it stages that moment of um, reunion and redemption. So, and it points to me um, to a, the larger, very real, very like right now issue of restorative justice. Um, and, and even, you know, as, as I was writing down my thoughts for this today, you know, the idea of rehabilitation in a prison sentence versus, you know, punitive punishment. And, and so I want to use my time today in my corner to break down why I think it's important for the play and for we, the human beings watching it unfold, that we're able to see forgiveness for Leontes at the end. Maybe not do it ourselves or even expect it from Hermione, but like to accept that it's that it's there and that that is a possibility and it's part of this conversation. So first of all, Leontes fucks up majorly. And like there's a reason that he made it onto our dick bracket list. Um, he has no excuses. I'm not trying to make any for him. He... Based on basically nothing, um, he sees Hermione and Polixenes, quote unquote, paddling palms for what he considers to be too long. Whatever the fuck paddling palms means. Oh, I got you. I got you. I mean, I kind of know. But like and and I saw I think at the very first Blackfriars conference I ever went to in 2013, somebody was presenting a paper on it and they did a demonstration of exactly how long it takes while Leontes is talking, like exactly how long the actors playing Hermione and Polixenes have to be holding hands for all that. And it's a good amount of time, like in stage time, it's like five full minutes or something, which is for fucking ever. But basically from that, he gleans that they are hitting it behind his back. And then he decides from that, that neither of his children are his, that he, he wants the newborn baby committed to the fire. He wants to poison his best friend. He wants to put his wife on trial. Um, for which the punishment, if were she to be convicted, would definitely be death. Yeah, it's death by burning, even. Um, wow. Which yeah. is a a super gendered punishment mm-hmm. um, in in early modern England. Sorry, because paper. Um, the the punishment for treason, if you're a woman, is death by burning, and yeah. if you're a man, it's being hanged, drawn, quartered, disemboweled. That whole Lovely. thing. Lovely. Yeah. yeah. So that's a gendered as fuck punishment. Yeah. Um, and, and it's fucked up. He has 100% lost it. Um, but then, you know, he reaps the very real consequences of his actions. His best friend is gone forever. His son is dead. His wife, he thinks, and we think for a while, is dead. His most trusted advisor is dead. And the other one is gone too. And his newborn daughter is missing. Like he was going to kill her and he kind of relented on that, but he was like, oh, just leave her to die. So he thinks she's dead at, you know, and at best she's missing at worst. She's dead. He's got absolutely nothing left at all. And then we learn 
by the time Act 5 comes back around and we're back in Sicilia, that for 16 years he has languished basically alone in his palace doing daily observances to Hermione's memorial and to his son's. All the while, you know, Paulina is basically the only one left and some of his other advisors. And she is there to make sure that he never forgets his wrongdoing. Like, if this were Game of Thrones, Paulina would be the septa who was like, shame, 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 beat you with a stick. Shame, shame, shame. She's that bitch, okay? And Jess, you might not know what I'm talking about, but no, a bunch I'm, of other people yeah. do. And that's really Great. all you need to know. It's like a mean okay, nun super. beating her over the head saying, shame. She's yeah, that, that bitch. And this is not unlike a prison sentence. Like, this is a guy alone. I mean, a, you know, sure, he's in a palace rather than a, you know, 10 by 10 cell. But it's it's basically prison, of a prison of his own making. And And what I started to realize when I thought about it that way is that, one, you know, either in your personal value systems, you believe in prisoner rehabilitation and restorative justice, or you don't, and that's going to affect how you understand the ending of this play. And if you don't know what I mean when I say restorative justice, let me break it down for you. I did a little digging because I wasn't sure that I understood those terms when I was throwing them around, so now I do. Um, and I so I got this from the Restorative Practices International website, uh, and they say that there are three tenets of restorative justice. One is that when the crime or wrongdoing occurs, the focus is on the harm that has been done to people and relationships as opposed to, I guess, you know, things, right? Um, in, and in our play, Paulina forces Leontes to vocalize his culpability several times. And she brings up for him that all of his bonds are broken. And he knows it, too. He acknowledges it. Two, when harm has been done, it creates obligations and liabilities, in our play, Leontes obligates himself to make amends for 16 years. And in uh, Act 5, he tries to help Florizel and Perdita, right? He feels an obligation to Florizel being uh, his former best friend's only son. He remembers the child, you know, from when they were friends. Um, and he wants to help this boy. So he, he starts that process, right? The obligations and the liabilities. And three, the way forward involves the wrongdoers victims and the community in efforts to heal the harm and put things right and i i would i would argue that that is the the statue scene at the end that is everyone that is all the parties coming together things being put right that's basically act five of this play restorative practices international also indicates that restorative justice programs furthermore like these things that you actually like taking these tenets and putting them into steps to actually heal a community are characterized by four values and they are this one, encounter, uh, creating opportunities for victims, offenders, uh, or wrongdoers, uh, their families and community members who want to do so to meet to discuss the crime or incident and its impact on them. Two, amends, expecting wrongdoers to take steps that repair the harm they have caused. Three, reintegration. This is the turning point for me. Reintegration, seeking to restore victims and offenders to wholeness and to become contributing members of society and four inclusion providing opportunities for parties with a stake in the specific crime or incident to participate in its resolution i mean that's the play that's the play that is act five minimum but that's that's the play i would argue that leontes's journey throughout this play and the reunions that occur in act five constitute this journey of restorative justice um, and to me, 
that's what makes it moving and beautiful is that Hermione, like I said, is not obligated to forgive Leontes, but the play does show us that they are all going to move forward together, right? They are reintegrated as a family and as a kingdom, as a community of maybe a couple of kingdoms, right? Polixenes is there too. By the end, there's reunion um, and reintegration and, and that final inclusion, right? They have the opportunity now and we don't see it because the play stops, but like they are at the point of inclusion with everybody with a stake in the inciting incident to, to partake in, in a res finding a resolution together. And then on top of that, I feel like not only are the characters in the play offered this reintegration and inclusion, I think we as the audience are part of this restorative process. We have been violated by Leontes' cruelty. It is offensive. Like I always have, always have a visceral reaction to everything that he does. But at, but at the same time, you know, we need to acknowledge the steps he has taken to make things right. They may not have been the steps I would have chosen, right? Like maybe there was more he could have done. I don't know, but he thought he was doing the right thing right by by devoting himself and being celibate and not going unmarried and whatever denying himself of luxuries and things like that so our participation in the resolution is also to let go of the hurt by the end right um it is required you to awake your faith right we have to let go of that hurt and i think the the magic of the statue scene at the end is sort of a vehicle for that and Hermione coming back and we do get that magical chance at being put back together. Um, but we have to let go of it, not for Leontes really, but, but for us to have, to have the, the catharsis, the, that beauty of this play really to take hold. We need to let go of how he hurt us. And uh, that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> you and I have very different ideas about this play and I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, good, good talk. I'm mm -hmm. into it. That was that was yeah. beautiful. I'm just you're like, beautiful. You're beautiful. So let's let's move on. Yeah. Shall we? Ooh, um, we get to revisit revisit this feature that I've missed because yeah. we haven't done a yeah, 201 well, in for fucking ever. It's been a minute. Yeah. yeah. So, um, one of one of our n newer features. Uh, segments, if you will, uh, for 201 episodes is something that we're calling How to Grad School um, that uh, I decided to start doing after after hearing uh, first year master students in my own program sort of try to negotiate and figure out the ins and outs of grad school on their own. And I was like, nah, that's dumb. Why aren't we helping people? Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's the hidden curriculum of academia is what we're trying to get through. Um, so this week, uh, I just, I decided that I wanted to talk about comps. Um, this is something that if you are a regular listener to our podcast, you will have heard me talking about, uh, back in, well, over the summer, pretty much all fall. Um, nearly even... the entire time we've been doing this podcast. Yeah, Very nearly. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of 2018, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I was working on it. Yeah. So let's start with what the fuck are comps? <laughs> comps is it's short for comprehensive exams. They're also called various things, depending on where you are. Every school has 
this but calls it something different usually so your comps is one of the most common also fields which is short for field exams also just exams and also quals which is short for qualifying exams Mm. um every every place does it differently there's no standard um except that you are going to spend a period of time usually no less than a semester and probably no more than about a year reading a shit ton uh as always i can only speak for english other humanities programs probably have differences um english has differences anyway so you do a lot of reading you read a shit ton here at the university of alabama we're required to read 130 texts of those 100 need to be primary texts so for me that was like a lot of plays and poetry and stuff and then 30 need to be secondary so that for me that was a mix of like foundational studies in the renaissance drama field and then also um some stuff that i thought was going to be a little more specific to my dissertation project so I spent a a long time reading shit that culminates in some kind of exam. In some places, the exams are oral. In many more places, I think the exams are written. The time of the exam varies. Uh, At the University of Alabama, we do a four hour exam. Um, Other places do an eight hour exam. Even other places do like a 16 hour exam over two days. It's wild. Um, So I feel very lucky that I only had to do a four hour exam. How we do it in my program within the English department at the University of Alabama, because I've just learned that regular lit PhDs have a different process, um, is that we read these 130 texts and then we, the students, have to write a list of 12 exam questions for ourselves. Um, And in the Strode program, those 12 questions have to hit four of six different categories we have a list of different categories like methodology and literary history and cultural contexts are three of them there are six total and our questions must represent at least four of those six um i think i got to five i did not do theory questions because i don't do theory it's a, a block that i have in my brain um so i wrote 12 questions sent them off to my exam committee which is three people um they picked four of my questions and then during my exam I had to answer two so I had four hours to answer two questions out of a total of four that I could have chosen from of the 12 that I had written um some programs will you know that's a normal process a student is going to write their own questions um I think more frequently students don't know what questions they're going to get those are created by the department or their specific committee or something it's a process um but this in most places is one of the distinctions that you have to get through before you can call yourself a phd candidate or a master's candidate Like right now, I am a PhD student. I have not yet achieved candidacy, but I have passed my exams. The next thing is the prospectus, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in another one of these segments. Anyway, um, so I just wanted to like demystify what that was. I don't have a whole lot of advice for like how to do it because everyone's program requirements are going to be different. So, you know, if you are 
in the Hudson Strode program at the University of Alabama, I can give you some advice. Yeah. I don't. Do you have questions? You I mean, you watched me go through it, but like you're sort of an outside. I eye. did watch you go through it and like run yourself through the ringer. This is um, my fear of tests is like one of the huge reasons why I didn't <laughs> want to do a PhD program. Sure, sure. Um, and actually, I didn't even know that such like in-depth exams were part of like the uh, sort of what is it like separating the wheat from the chaff before you could even write your dissertation. I just had this sort of blobby yeah. idea in my head that it was like, oh, I write a paper for 10 years and then I defend it. Like, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to do um, exams first. Yeah. So here's here's how most, I think, PhD programs in English in this country work is you have you come in with a master's degree or you get a master's degree along the way when you're there and you you have some amount of coursework to do uh here at ua it's five semesters so two and a half years of just going to class attending lectures writing papers same old same old recognizable if you've been a student ever that's what it was and then in the sixth semester which i am in now you do your comps and your prospectus theoretically (laughs) Mm-hmm. So I have done the comps, right? I did that in November. I'm in the thick of prospecticizing now. So when you finish coursework, you take the exams. Once you pass the exams, you get to start the prospectus, which is basically the the pitch for your dissertation. And then once you defend that pitch, then you advance to candidacy because you are called what's ABD, so all but dissertation. Mm-hmm. You've done everything required for the degree except write the dissertation. So um, I think the the national average for a PhD in the humanities is seven years. Um, that's that's how long it takes start to finish mm-hmm. average. Um, I believe I, it. Yeah, I get funded for five years, so I'm going to be done in five years. That's, that's a constraint of I'm not going to run out my funding is what I'm not going to do. Yeah. Because uh, securing additional funding is... Um, difficult there's a lot of moving pieces um and people generally don't understand that it takes a long ass time and there's a certain amount of hoops you have to jump through i said a lot of words and didn't give advice but i don't think i always need to give advice that's just what comps are yeah now you know what comps are you're welcome (laughs) yeah it's a thing to think about if you're in a master's program looking to transition to a phd Mm -hmm. program to see if it's right for you it's a factor you need to think about so our Shakes Bubble Gossip in a 201 episode, we try to keep it, you know, play-centric. So mm-hmm. first off, we're just going to list for you, and it's not very many on this list, which doesn't mm-hmm. really surprise me, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's a list of Winter's Tale productions coming at you in 2019. Uh, so there's at the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can see it the first half of March, opens March 1st. Great. Which is like next week, apparently. Yeah. You can see it at Boston University. Their Shakespeare Society there in Boston, Mass. is running it for a weekend from April 4 to 6. If you live in the United States, uh, particularly the eastern half, you can catch it on the American Shakespeare Center's Hand of Time tour. Uh, touring right now. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know where they're going next. Well, they but... do go out as far as Texas this time of year. So yeah, yeah, yeah. they're they're um, on the road. They're kind of all over the place in middle America. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, but then they'll be back in Stanton in residence at the Blackfriars Playhouse uh, starting in April. Yep. Mid-April. Sounds right. Yep. Yeah. And then they close June 8th. Yeah. Yep. Uh, then there's the Free Will Shakespeare Festival in Edmonton, Alberta. That's our friends to the north in Canada uh, from June 19th to July 14th. The Annapolis Shakespeare Company in Annapolis, Maryland is doing it from July 12th to August 4th. St. Lawrence Shakespeare Festival in Prescott, Ontario. Again, our friends in Canada, not Canada, uh, from July 12th to August 17th. Santa Cruz Shakespeare in Santa Cruz, California is running it from August 6th to September 1st. Nice. The Montford Park Players in Asheville, North Carolina, just to the south of where I'm at, uh, from August 30th to September 14th. Flagstaff Shakespeare Festival in Flagstaff, Arizona is doing it in the fall, September 6th to the 28th. Nice. And finally, rounding out this list, San Diego Shakespeare Society in San Diego, California, uh, from November 5 to December 3. So that's awesome. A little bit of Winter's Tale sprinkled here and there on the North American continent. So I may have talked about this before, but I'm bringing it up again, uh, not so much to like toot the horn of the organization for which I work, but it is Winter's Tale relevant. So um, we have this thing that we've just started uh, called the SNC Project at the ASC, and that's SNC. It stands for Shakespeare's New Contemporaries, where basically we are um, holding a competition for uh, two playwrights per year whose plays are chosen that uh, are in conversation in whatever way that the playwright interprets that, um, in conversation with one of the Shakespeare plays that we are running in a particular season. Uh, and one of the winners this year, the second winner, the second SNC play that will be launched, uh, is called Sixteen Winters or the Bear's Tale by Mary Elizabeth Hamilton. Sixteen Winters or the Bear's Tale, you might have guessed, is in conversation with the Winter's Tale. So um, weird. I know, it's weird, right? Never, never would have yeah. guessed. And it is all about that 16-year gap of time. So this playwright, um, she has chosen to focus uh, the events of her play on that big old gap in Shakespeare's play and and to take take some, you know, make up some events, some things that happen there. Um, I was at an early reading of the play earlier this year. It's funny. It is, it's different. I don't want to really spoil anything. So that's all I'll say. I'm excited to see it produced. <laughs> I really am. I'm excited about the conversation it's having with the Winter's Tale. So check that out. That will be when our touring troupe comes home to roost from April to June, they will be rolling in this show as the fourth in their repertory. So it's going to open, I think, um, early May. So be on, be on the lookout for that. It'll run for about six weeks. Um, so as I teased earlier, uh, I am working on The Winter's Tale sort of always. <laughs> kind of. I mean, it's one of my favorite plays, um, but it's it's, it's yep, showing up a that. lot in my work. Um, I, I have published on it previously. Um, there's a I've got a Winter's Tale section in my article born in a tempest when my mother died colon shakespeare's motherless daughters um i talk about perdita and marina in pericles and beatrice and hero in much ado i think those are my three sections it's been a while anyway if you are interested in reading that it's out there in the world you can find it 
Google me and it will come up. Um, and this this most recent project I'm working on, which is both an article length project that I'm hoping to place with a journal in the next year uh, and is a, a much a small piece of it is the foundation for my the paper that I'm taking to the Shakespeare Association of America conference in April. Mm-hmm. Um looks at the winter's tale <laughs> it looks at the winter's tale and pendosto together and asks what we can learn from the ways these two men shakespeare and robert green are representing women and what it means to be female and how to be female um and the fact that pretty much in both texts throughout always and forever the women are constantly suppressed by the men mm. so i'm i'm it's a bit of a feminist argument i'm i'm asking for a, a feminist resurrection of these texts and um pointing out that they are perhaps not as feminist as we would like them to be that i think i think both texts masquerade as proto-feminist early feminist um you know strong female characters and Mm -hmm. it's exciting and like these women are complex and they stand for what they believe in but do they actually and let's look at how these texts end and what the playwrights do to the women which is silence them so look for that hopefully that's exciting it'll, it'll find a journal near you sometime in the next couple of years um yeah i mean uh it was it was really fun to write it took a lot out of me but mm-hmm. it has turned into something that i i think i'm really proud of and pleased with so great i can't wait to read it yeah yeah it's it is what it is cool Great. All right, let's dick bracket and get the fuck out. <laughs> what is, like, what is this noise? <laughs> it's, it's no longer, <laughs> it's no longer a flaccid dick no, noise. It's, it's, a... it's, yeah. <laughs> I, think it, I think it needs, I have some notes. <laughs> uh, all right, so last week our matchup was Proteus from the Two Gentlemen of Verona going up against uh, the Duke from the Revengers tragedy. Mm-hmm. And as you predicted, Aubrey, this was a fucking slaughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think Proteus got like three votes. Yeah, I watched those polls this week. I watched yeah. and I was like, mm, yep, nobody yeah. likes a rapist. Yeah. <laughs> so the Duke is moving forward. Yeah. And he's he's going to go up against. Uh, I don't know. who Somebody. No, he's going up against yet. That I matchup might, hasn't uh, happened yet. No, it's it's Tamburlaine versus Barabbas, which hasn't happened yet. Oh, yes. You you are correct. I know. I know. <laughs> I was just looking at it. Yeah. But, so he'll uh, go yeah. up against whoever wins against yep. that. Real rape trumps the uh, attempted rape every time. So see you later, Proteus. Um, I'm not really sure how Proteus made it this far anyhow. But anyway, uh, this week... Name recognition. Yeah. This week, we've got the Cardinal from The Cardinal versus those dastardly boys from The White Devil. So it's another uh, two versus one matchup. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, murderers and rapists cardinal versus murderous yeah non-cardinals yep i feel like we don't need to rehash it at this point no but that's who's going up against watch out for those polls uh they'll be out when this episode airs so Mm -hmm. watch out for that and vote 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 okay so thanks 
so much for listening. Uh, we hope that you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Yeah, tune in next week for The Witch 101 with a special super secret guest expert. Mm-hmm. That's super exciting. And then for the quote to take us out today, um, in the spirit of, you know, you said that Valentine's lines from Two Gents were like the most yeah. perfect love speech. Yeah. I felt like it was appropriate to just grant us all a little bit of Florizel because this boy got game and I think he gives Valentine a good run for his money. Yeah, I love the speech. Yeah, I love it's it. It's beautiful. I'm glad you picked it. So Florizel says, What you do still betters what is done. When you speak sweet, I'd have you do it ever. When you sing, I'd have you buy and sell so. So give alms, pray so, and for the ordering of your affairs to sing them too. When you do dance, I wish you a wave of the sea that you might ever do nothing but that. Move still, still so, and own no other function. Each you're doing, so singular in each particular, crowns what you are doing in the present deeds that all your acts are queens. Now, if that's not a panty melter, I don't know what is. Yeah, right? It's real fucking good. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com or follow us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes or on Twitter at hurlyburlyshake. The Hurlyburly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more well, about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. Right all opinions you've heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Stop it. You are, though. You stop. (laughs) I love your brain and your face and your butt is so good. Oh, my God. Your butt, though? Can (laughs) you just talk about your butt and your brain and your face? (laughs) Bitch, you better leave this in also. Oh, my God. Of course. (laughs)